0: The Greenwood and Mulliner Show is proudly sponsored by Casa San Lorenzo Gosforth, the best Italian cuisine in the Northeast. Reserve a table today on 0191 0399 or visit casasanlorenzo.co.uk. Newcastle Fans TV.
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Greenwood and Mulliner Show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Me and Sam have just spent... Just under an hour with a former Nottingham Forest man, former Aston Villa man, a former Leeds United man, a former England Portland man, English. England international, a Euro '96er, a Euro '96er, and you'd be thinking of what he's not playing for Newcastle. And he's going on the Greenwood Mill and show. what's he done with Newcastle? He was part of the coaching setup, particularly under Alan Pardew but for the majority of the time that he was at Newcastle, from 2010 to 2015, Hutton was there from the very beginning, of course, Sam, but he spoke very openly, very honestly about his time at Newcastle. you going to say his name? That Alan Pot. Oh, yeah, that would help, wouldn't it? <laughs> 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 Instead of just calling him he, it's Steve Stone. <laughs> it's Steve Stone. By- just before we go on, I apologise for that. But what a man Steve Stone is. Really, really good. Fantastic with his time. Great storyteller. And great a great insight to what it was like under the Alan Pardew here at Newcastle United. In particular, Samuel.
2: Yes, it was. I mean, you Geordie's no out of talk. So, uh, Steve's no different. Boiled Newcastle fan as well. Let's not forget. Never got to play for him. But... Uh, but like you say there a good five years on the coaching team under particularly Alan Pardew the fifth place to finish of course what a team what players he would have coached so we go into all of that um, recently just uh, got sacked with, uh, from Burnley didn't he of course was part of Sean Dyche's setup, which was signing their own death warrant let's face it it was a crazy decision and would things have turned out the way they had had Dyche and Steve had stayed at Burnley Maybe it would have been uh, leads that go down. So who knows?
1: Exactly, who knows? But looking into the future, it's ironic when this podcast is coming out because Newcastle are taking on Nottingham Forest this weekend. And of course, he played for Forest for 12 years as well, Sam. It's just written in the stars, wasn't it?
2: And I'm going to be sat next to you for the game. And we've got to make sure we sit the right side of each other because it can't be Mulliner and Greenwood even though that was the original title. Well, that's what it should be called, to be fair, because then the the uh, initials would be Mags. Um, but, yeah, I used to hate playing Nottingham Forest, and as much as I love seeing them back in the Premier League, and I do, because they're a fantastic club, Nottingham Forest.
1: Big club, aren't they?
2: Huge. Um, great to see them back, but I hated playing them when... Um, well, I just hate playing them. Uh, we're a terrible record against them. Mainly away from home. At home, we do okay. Um but, yeah, great to see him back. Can't wait for the game. And and Steve spent 12, 12 years playing for Nottingham Forest. So, his loyalties are going to be torn for sure. But, yeah, start the season. Can't wait. Who knows where we're going to go this season? So, it's uh, it starts now. It's palpable.
1: It is. And Steve talks about eight-year contracts, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> he talks about the John Carver audition to becoming Newcastle United manager as well. And the rumours about Fabrizio Colaccini enters all those questions. And, you know, it was, it was really, really fascinating. Really, really fascinating, especially with Alan Pardew. Right? You, you're you on the record, basically, for saying, Sam, that you're an Alan Pardew fan. For what I, liked Newcastle
2: yeah, yeah. I, I liked him. Yeah, I liked him. I thought he did a good job overall. I think he bore the brunt of frustrations because of the problem with the owner. Like many, you know, and those circumstances that Chris Hewitt was dismissed. But we get into all of that anyway. But yeah, I I like Pardew. I thought he was funny, if nothing else.
1: And you're throwing a Gaza story as well.
2: Has to happen every
1: every time we've got
2: someone who who knew Gaza or was in a squad with Gaza. That question has to be asked. So yeah, stay tuned for that one.
1: Well, well we've got now we've got Steve Stone on. Some um, Newcastle versus Forest very very quickly prediction for the game on Saturday
2: 2-0 Newcastle confident that's, that's just what I think
1: okay fine
2: 3-1, 3-1 Forest what do you want me to say <laughs> 2 Newcastle this is this, this is this is this is the full start to the proper new era now let's, let's start on the front foot on a positive foot newly promoted teams are horrible to play at the start of the season, then no, that's not good. But normally we have them away from home at the start of the season. Um, but, you know, we're at home. Let's let's get off to a good start on the right footing because that's what's been missing for the past couple of years is a good start to the season.
1: Yeah, let's get that first three points on the board. But let's get this podcast up and running because it is one that you will want to listen to intently. It is the Greenman & Wilmer Show and it is with Steve Stone.
0: The Greenwood and Mulliner Show on Newcastle Fans TV.
1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Greenwood and Mulliner Show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Today me and Sam, me and Sam rather, are joined by a man who was part of England's Euro 96 squad that made the semi-finals of course. And from a Newcastle United point of view, he was part of the coaching team setup from 2010 to 2015. And because of that, he... Did a fantastic job at Burnley as well as the under 23 coach, uh, manager, and also part of Sean Dysh's setup as well. So it's a big welcome to Steve Stone. Steve, welcome to the Green and Mona show.
0: Great, thanks for having us. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I've been out of work now for probably about 10 to 12 weeks, and um, I'm enjoying to start to do this sort of thing. You know, being on a few podcasts and a few radio shows, and it's uh, it's nice just to get back in this of things a little bit after after taking a little bit of time off
1: yeah of course Sam um, I think Steve's time at Newcastle was very yeah. much full of good times maybe a couple of low times because that just happens in football but Sam just what is your kind of memories of Steve's playing career <laughs> talking, about the, uh, talking about the management side of things and coaching side of things
2: well I've got to be honest Steve I like you now because you've been at Newcastle for how long when I was five six seven years old in the 90s I yeah. didn't you, you and Ian Wow just used to keep me up at night with goals you used to score against Newcastle. I, I hated the pair of you. <laughs> but I mean obviously things have changed since then. Obviously, you were you were still uh, coaching at Burnley with Ian wone with with Sean Deutsch. We'll come on to that a little bit later. Yeah. But when you joined Newcastle, what were your first impressions? Because at that time it's it's pretty well known now, just how much chaos and turmoil it was constantly in under under Mike Ashley. What what were your experience? What was your first impressions of the club?
0: Well, the first experience that, I, that I, when I walked in there was I was actually trying to get me coaching badges. So I went under Joe Joyce under the academy. So uh, I went in and worked for free for about uh, nine months to a year. Followed you under 12s, you under 16s, you under 18s and got a lot of experience under some of the mentors around there. So I was trying to do a bit of groundwork uh, before I actually became a coach. To get, to, to get a full-time job. Obviously, at the top end of the time, Chris Hughton was in charge with Colin Calderwood, and they were doing a really good job. You know, they got them promoted, stabilised them in the in the Premier League. Uh, and and then I actually then got a job as, uh, the I think it was the under-16s coach at the time. And very quickly, I went from doing the under-16s and Colin Calderwood leaving, to then actually being promoted to the first team with, uh, uh, sorry, up with, uh, to the 23s with Peter Beasley first, and then to help out when Colin Carter would left to go up to the first team. So it was a rapid rise and probably was a too, too, too quick a rise. You know, I was probably a little bit out of my depth at the time, but sometimes you just got to sink or swim. You, you know, football's not perfect. You've just got to go in this world and just run with it. If someone promotes you, you've just got to get in the job and just go with it. So really, really good experiences in terms of working with Chris to start with. Really, really good at what he did. Um, worked incredibly hard, was first in and last out. Uh, and, I, and I learned a lot of Chris in terms of organisation and and how to actually uh, and actually how to run a football team. And be very calm in the way that he did stuff as well, very thoughtful. Um, then you take on that when Chris leaves. Um, obviously, a lot of people weren't happy when Chris left. I think he was 11th, 12th, or 13th in the Premier League at the time with the first time up. But it seemed like Chris obviously was wanting a longer contract or whatever was going on, uh, and there was changes to be made. And again, I just had to roll with it, you know. So. I, and we then got the notion that Alan Pardy was coming in. Um, myself and Peter Beazley then had to prepare the team for the Liverpool game, which was coming up on the, the first game. So we did the video reports and all the rest of it, which is, again, which has been thrown into the into the deep end, set players, organising the team. Um, and we tried to do the best that we could. Uh, Alan came in, thanked us for what we tried to do. Um, and then, obviously, Alan takes over for the game. I think he came in the Friday morning. Um, Alan takes over the game. We win 3-1. And you're up and off and running on the Monday morning. Alan offers me uh, a new contract. I think it was a five-year contract um, because of probably what we tried to do and what we tried to set up. And obviously, he was looking at me thinking I was a younger coach that he could develop. You know, he obviously knew I wasn't the finished article, so he tried to develop us in that sort of way. So that was the start of it. Um, and, th- and then you go into the Alan Pardew era where there was so many ups and downs. Um Obviously, Alan was um, always linked to to Mike Ashley through you know the the London sort of connection and he was his man and all the rest of it uh, so so Alan at times it, it would have found it difficult because of that link but some of the things that um, Alan did you know obviously he got us to fifth in the Premier League and one of his years and then we had a really we had a really tough year where we got into Europa League where we didn't have the squad to try and cope so we ended up um you know just surviving. Two games to go and uh but also getting to the quarter finals I think it was of the Europa League. So it was mixed emotions that season. And then it was turbulent after that. You know, we were we we knew the squad needed improving. Um we some of the signings that came in from France worked, like Cabay, and some of them didn't work out. The likes of Sylvain Marveau, who got injured a lot. So there was it was very it was very traumatic in terms of the signings that came in, some worked, some didn't. And you were always trying to build and develop and sell whilst trying to stay in the Premier League at the same time. It was uh so after the first couple of years, it, it was turbulent, but it was, we we sort of, we knew the brief, you know, I, actually Mike was quite, uh, he was quite aware of what he was going to give us, how much money he was going to give us, and that's what you've got, and that's what you can spend, and he wouldn't interfere, and he'd just let you get on with it. Obviously, Alan Pardew at the time had to, to manage up and manage down, and myself and John Carver at the time, and Andy Woodman wouldn't have conversations with, um, with the owner, it would all be down to, to Alan, because that was his job. Uh, and, for me, I thought he managed it really well over the time, but because also he had some difficult times with the supporters who, who where he was, uh, where, where he was well liked at first, and then having not such good seasons, when you know we were getting booed off, and there was all sorts going on. He was he was having a real tough time with it, but he managed to stay strong through. That's what I learned through Alan as well. Understood how to run a football club. Understand he was he's, he's a tough, thick-skinned man who, uh, when things get tough, he can dig deep he digs deep and he he stays the course so uh, I learned a lot of good things off him as well but you're right, it was turbulent there's no doubt about it if you're at Newcastle United um, there's always something around the corner which is going to change it very very quickly, when you're going along really really smoothly you're always thinking this can't last forever and it's not just with Alan being the manager or Chris being the manager it goes back to when Kevin Keegan was the manager many years ago, there's always something around the corner because it's because at the time, the football club didn't really have a sound base. It didn't really have a sound structure, um, and you're always trying to get that. You know, like like the top clubs have got. They've got real infrastructure. They've got real money in place. And Newcastle as a big club didn't quite have that underbelly.
1: It's really fascinating because you you talk about that infrastructure. We'll talk about obviously Newcastle United right now, but it seems that they're trying to do that. If I could just take it back. Uh, Steve to that that beginning bit and you talk about Chris and Alan obviously both giving you opportunities at certain points at that very very early stages what did you learn off both of them on the training pitch and did and what did you take off them on the training pitch on a day-to-day basis when you were doing your sessions well in terms of what they did they were really really accomplished coaches so when they went on the training pitch
0: you could tell they knew they belonged there. They felt they were confident in their own ability and how to put a session across. You're turning you're, you're around, you've got uh, 20, you know, multi-million pound players on the, on the pitch. They've all got egos. You're always trying to keep them happy. There's always something going on. There's always somebody not in the team or in the team who wants to be in the team. And you're managing that all the time. Uh, and I learned from both of them. That they were really, really confident in their own ability when they were out on that training pitch. But also they were confident in the ability because they'd done the groundwork before and they knew this stuff. They'd done the hard yards. You know, Chris had done his hard yards as an assistant for many, many years. Uh, and he and he knew his stuff. And it was the same with Alan when he got there. You know, he took it, he took a training session and he delivered, he delivered it with real gusto, you know, like this is what I want, this is what I want to believe in. You're gonna follow me, and I'm in charge. You know, there was no wavering of, oh, well, I'm not so sure. Or, They're in charge. They know this stuff. And, and, and that's what I took from them. It took me many years, obviously, to get to that as well. And, and at times, you still don't quite that, get that confidence in yourself uh, because they've been doing it a lot longer than me. Um, but they, were, they had real authenticity in what they were delivering out on the training ground, you know. It didn't matter what the message was, whether they believed in it or not. They made you believe that they believed in it.
2: I mean, Obviously, you said there at the start that it was a rapid rise for yourself uh, through the coaching ranks at Newcastle. But when Chris Hughton got sacked, which whatever your opinion, my opinion was, it was an absolute travesty that he got sacked for after the job he'd done there. He saved Newcastle in that championship yeah. season. Was there a kind of moment of... Uncertainty from yourself, as there always kind of is when a new manager enters a football club, thinking, "Well, that's it; it's over before it started." Sort of thing.
0: No, I, I thought uh, what would probably happen. I would, you know, was only put there with Chris as a temporary measure until they found somebody else because of of what was going on. So I knew when Alan came in that I would probably go back to down the inner twenty ones that it was at the time, um and that would have been no problem. I would have been fine with that, you know, but. He, uh, he managed to come in. He obviously saw something that he could develop as well, and I think it, all his other teams that he'd been before, he'd always had a younger coach that he'd always tried to bring through, and he thought that was part of his development, which he was really good at. So I didn't, I didn't think it was over. No, I wasn't. I wasn't uncertain about anything. Um, I was just thankful for the, for the opportunity to be there. And if I went down in the twenty ones again or wherever, I would just keep going. You know, my uh, my coaching career wouldn't be defined by the fact that Alan Pardew did or didn't want me at that time.
1: When Alan took over from Newcastle that first season, it was just about staying in the Premier League. And he did, he did that comfortably towards the end of that season. But at the season after, did any of the coaching staff ever believe that Newcastle United would be a game away from being in the Champions League? And especially with some of the senior players leaving the likes of Kevin Nolan, who was probably a big personality yeah. in the dressing room, Joey Barton, Andy Carroll, we all know he left in the uh in the in the, the winter transfer window and then replacing those sort of players with the likes of yeah. you know Davide Santos your new fullback you've got Colacini now as the new captain Tim cruel coming in Ben Arthur Cabay Teotte the the, you yeah. know, the the names Denver of what, Bar. the what, what? Yeah. Denver Bar exactly Pat I see so the name like I say we could name the whole team but what was that season like it must have been an absolutely sensational roller coaster to be on. Do you know what?
0: Because uh obviously we stayed up um, and we did still pretty comfortably in the end you know Um, losing the big characters was something you probably thought okay that's you know that's going to be a big change did we think we'd hit the ground running and and finish where we finished of course not again you'd be looking for consolidation but I think because of the the ownership and the manager there they they probably wanted a different perspective on what the team looked like Um, if you talk about those players you're on about there you know You, you get to a certain age and then you've got to sort of you've got to develop again, you've got to change the team, which which Fergie always did at Manchester United to make those harsh, ruthless decisions. And that's what the owners and Alan did at that time. It was a brave one to do because they're were them guys that you've talked about were entrenched in what Newcastle had been through over the last three or four years. But, you know, when, once we got rolling into that new season and you've seen some of those players that just hit the ground running in the fall, I mean, Kabai was terrific, by the way. I mean, okay. Kabai was, he was the one that came in and really changed that, he brought the quality up in, in everybody else. When you start putting good players in the players who aren't as good then start to lift themselves as well. check Teotti came in and absolutely bossed it for the season. You know, he he was an unknown. People were um people went up didn't really want to play against him. He was he was a you know, he was so him and Kabay in the middle of the park really set things off. And of course you had Colacini there who came in and did a really good job as captain and started having real unity. But not only was he a really good captain, um he had real quality, you know, so he had real quality and it all just, it was one of those seasons where everything just hit and it all blended together and I remember obviously we went, I think it was Everton the last game of the season, I knew we needed to win and somebody else needed to lose and it was still a tall order but you were still clinging on the hope of the fact that we could get fourth, this would be incredible but to still have to finish, if we were to finish in the top ten we would have been delighted but we finished fifth, we got a Europa League place and we were all just like, yeah, this is this this is a good team. You, you, I, I remember saying to John Carver and party, were well, well When we're there, you know, you're looking around going and you just know as a coach, you go, these aren't bad. These lads, you know, these are good. These are not bad. These are full of confidence. (laughs) You know, they didn't have because it was first. A lot of them were first years in the Premier League. They'd they'd hit the ground running sort of. They had no fear because they they didn't have any expectation. They just came in. They didn't know what it was about. It was all enthusiasm. It was all gusto. And things were coming off. And they just ran with it, and it just it just lasted for the whole season. I mean, Papa Cisse coming in as well. I think in the January made a big difference. I think I think he came in the January, and he just give you that little bit of impetus with his goals to to push you on to the next level. So all the signings were working, everything was going in a, in a positive direction, uh, and then you move on a couple of seasons, and it and it, it didn't quite work some of the signings, but to start with they did work.
2: Yeah, staying on the on the the good times. Um, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, Johan Kabai was comfortably our best midfielder since Rob Lee. It was absolutely unreal. But when you look at players like Hatton Ben Arthur, OK, we lost some big characters, like Johnny said there, you, you Nolans, you Bartons. But how did you, as a coach and staff, go about dealing with Hatton Ben Arthur day to day? Because he's a player that's fairly renowned now to to kind of spit his dummy out every now and again.
0: Yeah, with Hatam, it was a, you had to give him a, you know, a, a bit of love, I suppose. You know, you had to, you weren't pandering to him. Of course, you can't do that with any player on the team because you, all the other players are looking at you, think, well, is he getting special treatment? But also, he was, um, you, yeah, you, you sort of had, you had to make him feel wanted. You had to really, you had to get him the ball as much as much as you possibly could to do what he wanted to do with the ball, and he could damage when he got it. Of course, out of possession, he, you know there was holes in the team and there was there was problem areas where he was too high and wide and the rest of it. But we recognised that and tried to cover those positions. But dealing on a day-to-day basis, of course, could have been it, um, it. was it difficult? I don't know. If it was difficult. I think it was it, it was just more about just managing him, you know, and you understand, but you, you're also managing all the other players at the same time. His his sort of uh, days would have been more up and down than, say, like Coluccini, who was put pretty much solid, or Jonas Gutierrez, who was solid. You just had to be aware of where he was that morning. And as coaches, you are you are trained observers. You're watching, looking all the time to see what players' moods are about, what's happening at home, what's going on with their families. And that can make a big difference whether they're settled in the area to how they perform. So you're always looking at hat in them sort of areas before you went out in the training ground to see where he was, what his mood was about. But then even trying to do that, sometimes, he, he, you know, he could, be, he could be, you know, I had that funny walk with a little bit of shoulders down, the rest of it, and then he'd turn on training and go, oh, my God, this boy's incredible, you know. So you never, you never knew quite what you were going to get. But also, if you look at wide players over the years, they're always like that. I played wide and they're inconsistent. You know, it's how much can you get in the ball and how much damage can they do and how much can they affect the game? White players can be inconsistent. And Hatton was no different to to any more white players, but his highs were really, really high, weren't they? That's what you see, his highs were really high. And of course, the lows are probably lower than most players.
1: Towards the the end of that season, fifth place and again, uh, wildest of dreams we've, we've mentioned. That summer... How frustrated were yourself, and Alan probably in particular, because you said Alan had the most communication with with Mike, for example, in regards to transfers coming in? Because only Vernon and Anita came in a real note in terms of really coming into that first team. Uh, what conversations were you having in the first couple of games of that season? Going, is it, Was it more the case of can we just get a couple of more bodies in? Did, did, do you think the hierarchy at the time understood... What Europa League and the Premier League was going to do to this team?
0: I don't think. Uh, I don't think anybody did. I don't think. Um, I, I, I think as the owners, the um, they'd never been there before. Um, us as coaching staff had never been there before. I, I think if there wasn't frustration to start with because you're still on a high and you're still rolling from the season before. As a coach, it would have been Alan would have been having those conversations on trying to get more players in. There would have been his frustration that would have would have come through. But what we did do with the Europa League, um, we actually played a lot of the younger lads. You know, there'd be Sammy Amiom would play a lot of them games and, you know, Rolando Ahrens and people like that would all, Paul it would start to come in. all them sort of players would come in to be given a chance. The difficult thing is when you do Europa League, it's the time you get back at four and five o'clock in the morning after a Thursday night game on a Friday, and you have no time to work on the training ground on what you're doing on a Saturday. So that's what we were missing. So the, the playing side of it, yes, of course, we probably need a few more bodies to, to try and to try and help us out. But you'll see even teams that are that are working in the Premier League now that still struggle, even though they've got really big squads. When they're, you know, like the Wolves and a few others, have struggled over the years. That's especially that start of the season. What you find is you can't, you, you have that many games, your league form suffers, and then all of a sudden you're playing catch-up and then confidence has gone because you're playing catch-up. So you're not on the same role as what you were the season before. So it's not just about the bodies. It's about dealing with getting back late at night and your players are then having to recover to play a Premier League game, which is the toughest league in the world. That's where the problem was. And you got no time to work with your players or a team on the training ground at all. None. You've got none. You recovery, you play, you recovery, you play, you recovery, you play. And after a while, that starts to take its toll. So that's where, that's where the problems were. Not so much the signings.
2: In terms of incomings, you say there, but obviously when you've had a successful season and Newcastle aren't the the financial power that maybe we are now, who knows. Yeah. But when when teams come sniffing around players like Johan Kabai Denver Bar, how did you kind of keep them focused? Because they didn't leave straight away, did they? I remember Kabay, did he refuse to train? Was that true? Yeah.
0: Uh, no, no, I didn't refuse to train. it obviously just been an offer came in from uh, before the Arsenal game. Uh, I think we played Arsenal first game of the season. I think it was Arsenal man, so he won the two. Uh and he and he, he was just saying, you know, well there's an offer came in. I, I can't really get injured playing in this game when I've got such a big move coming along. Uh and it was just it was just a little bit uh, close to kickoff. That was that was the only problem for us, you know. It was it was pretty close to kickoff and um he was obviously protecting himself, which players do these days and you, you have no issue with that. You know they've got some big moves. So trying to... Just, actually, Johan didn't move then. I think he then moved either in the January of the next season or something. Yeah. Like So trying to keep him focused was then obviously difficult because he'd seen his big move. Um, and I'm not sure where exactly it was and whether he was going to Arsenal or something like that. had uh, collapsed. And that, that can be difficult for a player and that player's then trying to look after himself again, knowing that that team's coming around again in the January window. So, you, you end up the player does lose focus, even if he's even if he says he's not losing focus, and even if he says I'm trying my best, it must be incredibly difficult for him to try and do that. So, trying to keep him going or trying to promise him stuff at the end of the season was probably what we did. But, um, it, it was a difficult period not only for the team but for, for him because he was the linchpin of the team, everything went through him, everything creative went through him. So, all of a sudden, you've you've lost that little bit of an edge just off even using 5 10% you lost that so it was difficult but Johan was was still good around the building he was still a great character he still wanted to work hard he still tried to do the right things and he still appreciated what the fans were giving him on a saturday you know he was he was well liked and he still tried to put his lot in but psychologically somewhere along the line it has to affect you it has to affect you and that and then again that rubs off on everybody else as well so what you're trying to do you're trying to add and keep your best players and at this time, we were starting to lose our best players, and we weren't quite adding the quality of a goodbye coming in. So it did
1: affect us, of course it did. Yeah, definitely. When you have those caliber of players, of course, it's going to affect the first team in particular. Uh, but obviously, in the Premier League would do very well. Europe quarterfinals, and yeah. the coaching team get a eight year contract. Uh, oh, did I you think Andy <laughs> Woman's. <laughs> <had, had>, had... <laughs> How
0: much did Andy Goodman have to do with this? <laughs> Andy, Andy's a great guy, but I mean, I'll tell you what, Andy is uh, um, even on Andy, even on the bad days, even when you're having terrible days and the coaches are down, the teams down, Andy would be brilliant at picking you up every single day. He would come in, he'd be the same, he'd be non-stop, crack and banter trying to get you going. Uh, and I never understood it at first, but then I realized when we went through a really bad time he just he kept picking you up every day. He would pick you up every single day and keep you going and he's a re- has a real positive um, effect on teams, uh, players, coaches just because of he's the way he is. He won't let anything get him down and it's a, that's a real real strength in somebody to do that when when uh, when you're in real adversity you might be losing your job you know your team you right down by the bottom he had a real good mentality about him and he's a great guy by the way he's a top top bloke he's got some great stories and what he does is he sort of he keeps you going by taking taking your mind off actually what's happening around you not a good guy on
2: so when you get the offer of an 8 year deal what are you thinking <laughs> apart from <laughs> christmas has come early
0: well I was uh, I, we'd been given five deals to start with yeah uh, so we had the five-year deals in there so um i remember uh, i think mike had said to andy woodman or somebody around about when they're out one night or whatever something around that um or a game that you know we're, we're talking about giving you a year contracts and that obviously felt us back to me and john carver and uh and and then he, he produced them you know he says um you know you guys have been loyal to me you've done a good job um so i want to be loyal to you as well you know i what, what It works both ways. He says, I don't want you to go anywhere, so I don't want you to go anywhere either. So it was the loyalty uh, both ways that it worked. I mean, it was it's probably a record contract, isn't it, in terms of length that's ever been given in the Premier League. Um, But of course, we, we were really happy to sign them and away you go, you know. I mean, we knew as well. We, we know at the time, you know, whether you've got a three-year contract or an eight-year contract, you can get sacked at any time. If the results aren't going well, you, you're out the door. But um, it was it was it was different. I will give you that it's different, and I haven't had an a year contract since.
1: Um, <laughs> it only yeah. expired
2: a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: <don't know>. Fantastic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Fantastic no,
0: stuff.
1: Going back on to that's on the way Mike
0: just he wanted lightly both ways. That's what he wanted. No,
1: it's no it's, it's it's good business sense, if we're being honest. If, you know, as much as people all talk about Mike and that that sort of sense, it is good business. It, you know keep the people that you want at the club because the people ultimately are either going to deliver or they're not going i'm not going to deliver but if you've got trust in them it'll help you in the long run but going back onto uh towards alan's uh period where it wasn't going so well and towards yeah. when he actually did leave um on the, the christmas 2014. do you think alan pardew was ever given enough credit for the job he was given at Newcastle United. And do you feel that the criticism that he did receive, particularly towards the maybe the last 12 months of his tenure at Newcastle, was justified or not?
0: No, it wasn't justified. But I also think it was the fans' reactions probably to Mike Ashley. They thought they could get through the manager Uh, to Mike. I think that's what it was. It was probably the frustration in terms of what was being signed and what was not being signed. So I think Alan bore the front of uh, the front. Of the fans because he he's in front of the camera, he's on the sidelines. You you've got nowhere to hide, uh, and I thought it was a re, it was a difficult period for him. Um, but also he won the way he, he stood strong and, and worked through it. He definitely didn't get the credit that he deserved, considering the, uh, what was being brought in and the teams that were being put together and the league positions. Because if you look at the next season, Newcastle got relegated without him being there and uh, the structure that he put in place. Whatever you think, he was a coach or manager or whatever he kept him in the Premier League for, was it four and a half seasons? Something like that, three and a half, four and a half seasons, something yeah. like that. Um, and, and the next year, with the same team and probably some additions, with Wijnaldum and the rest of it, that team went down. That's That speaks volumes of what he actually did do.
2: Yeah. I mean, for the record, I've always liked Alan Pardew. I mean, I know I said earlier that and I stand by it, that Chris Hughton shouldn't have been sacked at the time because he'd done a, an amazing job. But I I, I I agree with you, Steve. I think Alan did a fantastic job. And I think he was harshly treated by some as- aspects of the uh, of the fan base. But what I did like about... Oh, I say, oh, you shouldn't really like this about Alan Pardew. But you, every now and again with Alan, you get a little incident that which shouldn't happen, but it's yeah. actually quite funny. I mean, like nudging a linesman, or I mean, it's not a headbutt against Miler, but when you're obviously you and John Carver and Andy Woodman are part of that team, what, what the, what's the conversation like after he's pushed over a
0: linesman or headbutted David Miler? Well, you certainly, well, you certainly not, you certainly not going to tell him he's wrong or the rest of it because what you do, <laughs> what you are getting, well, no, but what you really are getting from uh, from Allen was authenticity in terms of. He was involved in the game. He cared. He was passionate. You know what I mean. So it mattered to him. So these incidents, sometimes that would happen, would just be him just going over the top a little bit and just spilling over to to the passion that was that was actually what he wanted to do. Um Of, of course, they're all wrong at the time. He knows they're wrong at the time. You know what I mean? But look back. You have to live and learn by those, and you you, you make them actions. You have just got to stand by it. So. Um, we certainly weren't laughing about them afterwards, I can tell you that now. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a conversation where you go and oh, all that was funny. There were the ones of and the ones of uh he realized that he had to put right and apologize and he got fined for the ones off the club, um, especially the Myler incident. And of course, things happen in football. You know, things happen in football with passionate people. Of course they do. Look at or jumping over a fence, trying to karate kick somebody, you know. And, People are passionate when they're in the... It's a it's a heated environment where your livelihood's on the line, your li- livelihood's on the line. Uh, and sometimes it spills over and spills over on benches, spills over on the pitch. And sometimes a manager will end up on the pitch. Um, I've seen Diego Simeone kick a ball on the pitch. He's ran onto the pitch and kicked a ball when a game's still going on. So these are passionate guys who care about the game. So sometimes it'll spill over and you've just got to take the consequences afterwards, but never lose your authenticity in terms of, I still care. I still want this team to win, and that's what—that's why that happens. Sometimes it's a passionate game. Fifty thousand people.
1: It's not always easy. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not easy. Like I can say we can only only put ourselves in that in that position, and of course, Alan did that for a number of years. So it, it must be very, very difficult at times. When Alan did leave, it was yourself and John. But John was obviously given the role as caretaker manager up to the end of that yeah. season. Did you did John in particular see that as an audition to try and get the job at the end of that season if he could do well with Newcastle from January to to May or did he always feel like he was just there for somebody else to take over
0: um, I, well I I think at first I think we were, I think John was probably told just take the job for two or three games so you would then play a certain type of way if you've got two or three games then he was told it's another five or six games I think so then you start Oh, all right okay so i'm in the hot seat a little bit then you start changing how you think and how the team plays and then you're told you give them to the end of the season then it's a whole different ball game then your mindset is just changing all the way along so to go in to start with you probably thought we'll play we play more expansive in how we play football because i've only got a couple of games and if i can if I win a couple of games in an expansive way i might get a chance of getting that job or something else i can show the fans that i, I can play this way uh then you go to another couple of games and you realize that being that expansive isn't going to work, and we have to tighten it up a little bit. And then you got to the end of the season where you're going, okay, this team's not quite where it should be now. We need to really tighten up, and we really need to get a team on the pitch which can, you know, hold down the fort and try and win games. By that time, the team's probably lost a, a bit of confidence in where it's going throughout the season because it wasn't on a great run, and you haven't then try and pick them up and put teams together. Um, and we're, we're a coach and we're a manager down as well by the way so you're Alan Downs as me and John you, you, you've you lost a man as well so you've lost a really experienced manager in terms of that as well so I think John probably thought as it was going along that that was an audition definitely was an audition to try and get the job or try and get another job Um if we would have won a few more games along the way then John might have actually got the job or got a different job somewhere else because of it. But the fact that we stayed up last game of the season and we didn't win very many games and we had we had a lot of trouble with a lot of injuries and all the rest of it, which all managers and coaches always see. of course, it's always there. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, it become, then it become difficult and it become pretty obvious that um, Steve McLaren was sitting in the wings and as Steve McLaren was sitting in the wings and we sort of got the... We got the gist that he was he was coming in, you know. You could you could tell.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I said this on a previous episode, but I still got paid out because I had thirty three to one on John Carver getting the job, so I was chuffed. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, a kind of two pronged question for you, Steve. Was there ever a conversation with Alan about him taking you to Crystal Palace? And uh, not from me, no. Okay, no, and. No, I... and... When Alan did go, I don't know if you remember, the bookie's favourite was actually Fabrizio Colacini. Did that get back to the dressing room and was everyone a bit confused
0: by all that? No, I don't think people are confused. I think that's just better. nods. probably half them looked at half them didn't, maybe a bit of banter about it. But first bit of your question was, uh, obviously Alan goes into Crystal Palace. We're still in situ on an eight-year contract, by the way. We still have six years left or five years left of that contract. So for him to take any of us at the time, you've then got to pay that contract up, which is just not, there's no chance that's going to happen. And Alan, Alan obviously goes to Crystal Palace and I think he had Keith Milne there at the time uh, and a couple of other coaches. And he just walks in and works with those coaches. Of course, that's what a manager, he gets He gets paid to do that. So there was never any conversations about that happening. Um, and we obviously are now entrenched in the Newcastle trying to keep them in the Premier League and our focus is to do that. That's what we're looking at. But the genie thing, the manager didn't cause any... Uh, it didn't cause any issue in that. What does cause the issue is by John only getting the job for two or three games and then being two or five or six and then toward
1: the end of the season.
0: When he was told to the end of the season, then it's a different ball game. Then everybody's looking at it and the players can settle down and they know exactly what it's about. The players really like John. They really like John in terms of uh, his, his coaching, his manner and all the rest of it. But it's still a difficult time because of because of what we had. It was something like you know it was different because of what we had in the team that was then and, and the injuries and suspensions that were coming along. It was uh, it was it was tough. It was tough, you know. But the players dug in. They worked hard. They, they, there was no issues with them at all, and, uh, and 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 John got them
1: going most games, you know. Before we talk about Newcastle United right now, I just want to really just quickly touch on about Burnley because yeah, obviously you've been at Burnley for for, for a few years until very very recently, I think. Before we touch on about Nick Pope and Chris Wood, who, of course, you would have dealt with in the now, of course, Newcastle United players. How shocked were you that, in particular, Sean Dyche was told that he no longer needed at Burnley? Because I think the whole footballing world was kind of bemused by it because he'd done such a magnificent job. I actually lived in Burnley for three seasons. I was there when he first arrived at Burnley. And just that first promotion in particular, the whole town was absolutely buzzing. They just couldn't believe how well he had done with some fantastic players
0: so shocked in football did you say no that doesn't work you're never shocked (laughs) you're never ever ever shocked in football it's as simple as that um in terms of if you because of how long he'd been there and what he'd done um you know you 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 do expect a little bit longer of course you've earned that respect um but also you know and I was part of that first team coaching staff um we haven't won enough games, um, so if you go, all right, we haven't won enough games. You go, okay, and you have to, you just have to take it on the chin, and that's football. But being shocked, absolutely not. You also got to remember as well the ownership had changed at Burnley, um, and uh, there was a new American owner, led by Alan Pace and all the rest of it. So where you've had the, the last chairman might have, might have not reacted, this one did, and that's and that's fine, and that's the way they work. And there's, there's you have you know you've got no complaints from us in terms of. Well, that was harsher. This is, you know, this is football. This is business. This is a really tough, tough business to be in. And if you don't win football games, um, you end up, you end up getting the sack. So that's, that's just the way it is. You, you you can't be bitter about it. You can't, you can't. You have to move on really quickly in football. You have to move on. Another manager's in there now. He'll have his own stamp, his own authority, and what he's trying to do, his own vision. And we just look for something else different down the line. You just, uh, what you do do is you look back when you reflect afterwards, and you go. Yeah, what a great job he did. You know, you go, yeah. Because when you're in it, sometimes it's all going on and you forget about what the job that's been done and how you've done and all the difficult times and the lack of investment and all the rest of it that went on at Burnley and how he's kept him in the Premier League. It's incredible. He's entrenched in that. When you come out and you step away, you go, Yeah, that was that was how did how did we do that? How did he how did he do that? How did him and the EMO, Tony from Billy Mercer, and me came at the end, how did they actually do that? Um and you've just got to be proud of what they've done. Everything changes, football football changes. You have to move on. You have to move on quickly.
2: I mean, from a fan's perspective, obviously Newcastle were were down there in that relegation scrap at, yeah. the, at the time when um, Sean and, and, and your team were dismissed. But it's not very often from a fan's point of view where you're kind of happy that a manager from a, another team, a relegation rival, is yeah. getting the sack. Because we yeah. we all thought that it was... Wow, they've signed their own suicide. What are they doing? What just it just seemed crazy. So I know you say you shouldn't be surprised in the world of football, Steve. But I I think this gets pretty close. But oh yeah, but but what in terms of the playing side and not winning enough games? Do you think Chris Wood's departure to Newcastle was not a turning point, but a a contributing factor to to the downfall of Burnley?
0: What you end up doing, if if you looked at Burnley at the time, we needed another striker uh, to go alongside Chris. You know, Ashley Barnes had a few injuries. You know, um, Jay Rodriguez was doing okay as well. He was coming, but he had a few injuries as well, but he'd scored a few goals. So what we needed really was another centre forward to go alongside Chris Wood. That's what we needed. So when you sell Chris Wood and then you do bring in one, you've just gone like for like. And you've uh, you, you needed some more firepower. Um Chris has done a terrific job by the way over the years. He was he scored ten every single year in the Premier League for the last I think it was four or five years. Um when and you've got a team who probably scores 40 goals a season, that's you take that out of your team, especially at Christmas, even though he probably hadn't been scoring as many as he would have uh in the first part of the season. That is somebody who just leads the line, he just occupies defenders, he's always in the box. When the ball's coming, he's always in between the sticks, he'll always get a chance, even when you're having a we're not having a great game. So to lose him, it just it felt a bit, obviously, demoralising in terms of what it was. As coaches, you don't feel it or show it. You just go out there and you go, right, you crack on, you get on with it. But it must have been difficult for the supporters and the, the players that were already there for, to see their main man disappear. Yes, we brought in Beghorst, um, who did a good job, by the way, and was a good link player and technician. But we'd, lo- we'd lost that pace in behind, and Chris had the pace to stretch defenders, and you know he's headed goals in the box, and we were putting crosses in because that's what we were, a crossing team. We just lost, we just lost that. And at the time, you, you, you're obviously disappointed, but you still, you still believe because we used to believe in this team. We'll find a way. This team finds a way. It Doesn't matter how it finds a way. Every single year finds a way. We once had twelve points after nineteen games and stayed up comfortably. I mean, that's incredible, you know, for, for Sean and coach coaching staff to have done that. And I was not part, I was 23 at the time. For them to do that is just um, incredible. So that's where you thought, we'll find a way. We just keep going. We're we'll not panic. We'll stay calm and train every day. Win, lose, a draw, we just keep going. And that was always what we did. And that was Sean's he strength. That, that was real strength. You know, he really, he just really kept a, an even keel all the way along the line with his staff and his players and the board. No, no, we'll be okay will be okay,
1: and he's really, really good at that. But he's, but he's got great experience at doing that. Yeah, he really does. He's a fantastic manager. you will definitely get another big job. Where, yeah. Obviously, when a job does come about, but Newcastle United right now is probably a completely different. Newcastle right. United is when, when you were there, Steve. <laughs> when you, when you look at Newcastle right now, as see Nick that we'll mention in a second, He's probably going to be Newcastle's new number one goalkeeper. The brought an already Botman target, and it's probably going to be a cut and more brought in before that first game against your former club, Nottingham Forest. How do you see Newcastle doing this season? Because I think a lot of Newcastle fans are very, very excited for probably the first time in a long time going into a new season. I think excited is the right word. I think transition
0: is another word which you've got to be careful of when you're transitioning um, to not get overhyped so then you become disappointed. Um, I think if you look at Man City's mantra over the years and how they've went about stuff and how long it took them to get there, you have to be patient. You've also got to realise that all the top clubs in the Premier League now are a lot richer than when, for instance, when Sir John Hall had the club or even when Man City started their their voyage. You've got to be patient. It's going to be really, really difficult to break into that top four. I think if you get in the upper echelons of the, of the 10, if you go somewhere 8, 9, 10, I think that's progression. Do not see that as failure. Make sure you uh, you understand that, fans understand that this is a journey and it's a transition journey that you have to be patient with you know, and uh, I understand, because I'm a Newcastle fan. So over the years, I'm one of those that gets too excited and too down. We're going to win the league or get relegated. There's no in-between. There's never any in-between. <laughs> <laughs> in so what we've got what we've got to do as supporters now is realise that it's being built in as we go over the years, as long as we're seeing progression, as long as we're seeing better players come in, as long as we're seeing the money's being spent in the right way uh, and you've got a good technical director in the who's been brought in, Dan Ashworth, who can build the club and his, his contacts, then that's what you need to see. You need to see progression on a year-on-year basis. But it won't happen overnight. It certainly won't. So people don't want to get too excited. You might have one good season and, and you know, it might be a flash in the pan, but you've got to realise that it's, it's about the top-end teams. Whoever spends the most money is normally the one that wins or roundabout. The league table doesn't lie, does it? Money talks.
2: It does, it does. But I think the way we're going about
0: our business at the moment,
2: nice, slow, sustainable build, I think that yeah. gives us something to really look forward to long-term. But um, obviously one of the main signings so far this summer has been Nick Pope. You'll know yeah. all about him. So tell us what we need to know.
0: Well, for starters, he's a great character, really positive um, you know he's uh, he's he's every day. He's fitting well with all his teammates. You know he's he's one of them guys that is impossible to dislike in any way, shape or form. You know, and what he does, he's a great communicator at the back. He will he comes for crosses. He's set off for crosses before the ball's even been kicked. He just comes and takes the pressure off his back four. He makes decisions really, really. Early. He comes and gets it, claims it. He's six foot six. What you'll see is um, he stops the ball going in the net. It doesn't matter how he stops it going in the net. He stops it. So he's got such a huge presence. When strikers are whoever's looking at the goal, he's got such a huge presence in there. There's just nowhere to put the ball half the time. He's just uh, hes a terrific shot stopper. And I'm talking about filling the goal in terms of not catching the ball. I'm in terms of he stops the ball either with his feet or his arms or his wingspan. And he makes important. What he does, is he makes really important saves at important times of a game. So if it's nil-nil and somebody has an unbelievable chance, he normally makes that save to keep you in the game, so you can then go up, go up the other end, and score yourself. That's what he's really good at. Because at Burnley, there was a load of games when it was nil-nil. If we were going to win a game, he had to always make two or three really good saves, and we'd end up winning one-nil down the other end. And you, that's what you've got in the goalkeeper. You got to remember as well. He was he was England's number one goalkeeper. Bef, was it before the last? before the last summer going in and yeah. before he got injured and then missed it so he was actually in the number one spot um, so you've will you've got a goalkeeper who keeps the ball out the net most importantly forget about playing out from the back and all
1: the rest of it he keeps the ball out the net and he do, he'll do a great job of that Fantastic I can't wait to see him at Newcastle's well, Newcastle's first game against Nottingham Forest which I've mentioned on the 6th of August just finally uh, Steve where will Newcastle United be in five years time?
0: I think they'll be. I think they'll be close to the Champions League football or competing for it. People will say, "Well, they should be. They should be in that. No problem. They should be doing it easy with the money they're going to spend." It's not always that easy to spend money. If you're trying to get the top players, the top players have got such and such options these days to go to your Man United, your Manchester City, your Liverpool's. So they've all got the tradition and history and Champions League pedigree over the last few years, where they can attract those players still. What Newcastle need to do is, is is build into that so players then want to come to that. They might have to fork out over the odds for certain players to try and get them to that level to try and take them off some of these uh, some of these teams. But I see them on the edge of uh, of Champions League football. And I think the owners will probably disagree. I think they'll want to see them in Champions League football. But I think they'll be around that position where they're competing with you know the your likes of your yeah God. Trying to think of the teams that will be there. You know, the, you know, be above all the Aston Villas and the rest of it, who are competing around that seventh, eighth, will be around sort of that fifth, that fifth place. And to break in will be a huge achievement. By the way, when they break in, that that will be the achievement.
2: Yeah, that'll be massive. Um, final one from me, Stephen. It's it's a question I always ask someone who's experienced this particular individual that I'm going to ask about, um, which gives a, a bit of a clue of what I'm going to say, but. Obviously, you were part of the uh, Euro 96 squad. Tremendous times. God, the 90s were great. <laughs> but, um, Paul Gascoigne, have you got a, a, Gaza, a Gaza story for us?
0: Um, a Gaza story, dear me. Well, we used to go and after after Euro 96 games, back in the day, you'd probably have too many beers after the game. Do you know, Everybody would probably prop back in. Uh, we'd all have a few beers afterwards. And uh, and Gaza was always the one that used to nick out the back for a cigarette. He was always the one that used to nick out the back and you have this cigarette. You think, look at this professional footballer having a cigarette out the back. He's been amazing Holland and Scotland and all those sort of things. And he'd just be sitting on a few drinks and just a cigarette out the back, as cool as you like, as cool as you like. I mean, I remember one day that uh, we were playing. They we were playing Holland the next day or, or we had one of these teams the next day. Uh, and it's about 90 degrees outside. We're all meant to be in bed rest in the afternoon. And Gaza's outside playing tennis with a waiter. <laughs> 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 he's just outside playing tennis, and he's got a, he's got one of the biggest games his career coming around. and that was just him. He was just hyperactive all the time. But I got to tell you, what a great guy! Infectious, um, genuine, loyal, uh, and really kind as well. He'd give you your last penny, Gaza. What player? Yeah.
1: Just a typical Geordie, a nice bloke, eh? Okay? Yeah. Nice bloke. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I've really, really enjoyed that. It's been some fantastic stories, including the one about Gaza as well. It's been absolutely brilliant. Sam, where can everybody listen to this podcast?
2: Yeah, so the podcast link's in the description for the audio podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, smash that like button. And uh, yeah, Steve, we wish you all the best. And there'd be no doubt you'll be back in uh, football soon, into the, uh, the madhouse, the mad world of football.
0: Cheers! Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. It's been good talking about some of the, you know, the sort of good old days, eh?
2: Absolutely. Hang on. i actually one thing. Where are your loyalties going to lie? That first game of the season? Are you going to be Newcastle or are you going to be Knox Forest? I'm going to be uh,
0: Newcastle Forest. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it can't be a throw, then isn't it? For a team like Newcastle, it's impossible. When you play, I played for Forest for 12 years. The bulk of be yeah. career. You can't, it's just impossible to split
1: the ladies for that. You know, it's
0: really, it's, you just can't do it. I'm just going to go and enjoy it.
1: Good, Fair well, I hope you do enjoy it. And hopefully, we, we, from, from mine and Sam's point of view, we can see a home win. But for <laughs> myself, Jonathan and Sam Milner, and our fantastic guest, Steve Stone, we'll see you all very soon.
0: Newcastle Fans TV. The Greenwood and Mulliner Show is proudly sponsored by Casa San Lorenzo Gosforth, the best Italian cuisine in the Northeast. Reserve a table today on 0399 or visit casasanlorenzo.co.uk.